0: without further ado, I'd like to bring into the show the uh, director of this, as I said, wonderful documentary film. Uh, It's called The Serengeti Rules, and we're speaking with the director of the film, and that would be Nicholas Brown. Nicholas, welcome to Film School.
1: Thank you. Thanks very much.
0: Thank you so much for being here. Uh, what a wonderful film! Uh, tell us a little bit about, well, a little bit about your background and how you got to know about these uh, remarkable scientists, including Bob Payne, Tony Sinclair, Mary E. Power, and others. Tell us a little bit about your uh, sort of how you came to this project.
1: Yeah, sure. Well, the the project started um, when we got a hold of Sean Carroll's book. He, in the book, sort of goes into some of the the science um, of, of how not only how nature regulates, but how your body regulates. And it was quite a um, it was quite a, 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 a it's a quite a heavy science book. And we were trying to work out how just how we could make the 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 movie work, and um, we focused on the lives of these five scientists, people who, you know, back in the 60s were, you know, I think ecology was, uh, they, they called ecology, you know, somewhat derisively. They said it was more like stamp collecting. You just sort of went around and into nature, and you sort of said, that lives here. and, and you know, And people hadn't really worked out yet why things are the way they were, or why you have... You know, a certain species on a certain in a certain environment, and and why there are such numbers. You know, why in the Serengeti, for example, would you have wildebeest, and 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 why in those numbers, and why there, and what why do they do what they do? So um, we started digging in to the the characters, and um, that led to the film.
0: Yeah. Again, just what you described, I think that's important for people to understand that while we have an incredible array of uh, scientists today working around the, the world in trying to understand the planet that we live in and the implications of climate change and industrialization on the world, we are, we don't, at this time, as you said, it was kind of a quaint thing, sort of a, sort of a boutique thing, to be interested in how the environment uh, operated, how our world operated, and so I think that's an important part of sort of understanding why these people are so important and why they are able to, uh, they were able to affect such a tremendous, they had a tremendous impact on science. Uh, and maybe that's yeah, that's indeed. Important. And i think
1: you know um ecology is one of those subjects where um you know i mean we actually know so much more about like the moon and 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 uh you know distant stellar bodies than we actually really do about our own planet um the, the complexity involved I, I, one of the scientists who's going to be there tonight um at the um screening is a guy named jim estes and he has a um, just a very simple mathematical equation, which shows you, if you have just a a very simple, say you had a really simple ecological system with, say, 100 species, which is, you know, you might find those in the Arctic where, you know, really have very few animals interacting. When you count all the ways they can interact, they can either eat each other or they can, you know, be negative or positive or neutral in, in their interactions with each other. The complexities involved, just with 100 species, ends up being like you know some astronomical figure. I, I can't even remember, but it's got a lot of zeros behind it. <laughs> um, so, in fact, ecology, it turns out, is one of the most difficult sciences, and possibly one of the reasons it got a late start in comparison to, say, other sciences, is because... It is just simply so complex you know the interactions of of the you know everything everything from you know your gut bacteria on up to um the interactions of of elephants and wildebeest on the serengeti uh, on all these different scales um it, it it's an enormously complex science but um but I, I think enormously vital one you know um what 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 one of the reasons we made the film and one of the things that i always say to audiences is that um You know, uh, the the last century, we spent a lot of time and energy as humans working out our own health, say the health of the human body, fixing fixing that, and... um, this century really has to be the century of the biosphere. How do we take care of the world around us? How do we bring it back to health? Because if we can't, ourselves, in, uh, indeed, ourselves will be in jeopardy.
0: Yeah, there are there are a lot of different things in the film that are important bits of uh, information in terms of uh, how we've progressed since the since they started doing their their. Um, their research and uh one of the things that i think we should talk about is the idea of the importance of certain species in the ecosystem and they're referred to in the film as keystone species uh tell us a little bit about that idea of sort of and how that relates to sort of the how how things work in nature
1: so keystone species are something that Bob Payne discovered. Bob Payne sadly passed away uh, during the making of the film, actually. Um, Bob Payne worked up in the Pacific Northwest, and he worked uh, specifically in in, a, in the tidal zone. Uh, this will be the region where, you know, between the breakers and, and where the kind of tide sometimes uh, exposes the, the rocks and the shoals and then sometimes submerges them. And you have an array of species there, and... Um, it's a good example, and and uh, it's where we begin the film as well. Is with this idea that if you have an array of species living in an environment like the the intertidal zone, there um, there will be plants. There will be um, things that eat the plants, uh, which uh, and then there will be those those animals that eat the plant eaters. So there are different levers, levels or layers. Um, a Keystone species most often ends up being a uh, top predator, and the way Bob Payne discovered this is that when he looked at the the tide pool, there was one key predator, which is a starfish. Um, we don't think of starfish as predators, but they are actually they're like they're like the lions of the tide pool they're incredibly voracious and um, these uh so so what Bob did in the in in the fifteen species that were there, he removed this one, which was the starfish, and the entire biodiversity of the uh, tide pool collapsed um, when he removed other species, nothing happened, there were no changes, but when he removed this one, the biodiversity literally reduced from fifteen species down to one, and that got him thinking that there are certain species that are more important than others, and this completely overturned the way that we thought nature works. Prior to that, people had always thought that nature was built upon um, sunlight and nutrients, and then you get the grasses and the trees, and and then things will eat those green things, and then there'll be the predators, and the predators are somehow insignificant. And what Bob Works showed was that, no, the the predators, in fact, completely determine how uh, an environment looks. Um, it was based on that, then we found that in all kinds of other environments in fact, now uh, we pretty much we can't find an environment that doesn't work this way it would be It would be really scientifically interesting to find an environment somewhere that doesn't have a keystone species or some sort of uh top down forcing is what they call it a top down where pres presence of like a predator or a a, a relatively rare species usually at, at, at near the summit of the food chain, um, completely uh, is responsible for how the rest of the ecosystem functions.
0: Yeah. Let's talk, uh, and it, it is such a fascinating documentary. It, it is, uh, not only is it a history lesson going back to the time when uh, these scientists were working, and they are working in se- separate disciplines, and they came together in this with this idea of studying the environment in a way that they, they began to put the the pieces of this puzzle together as a group, and it, it's a remarkable document on that level. Just sort of their history and understanding them, getting to know them, as well as how they fit into a bigger picture and how they were uh, the pioneers who, who in many ways, uh, sh- uh, showed the path forward for others to to who followed them to understand the world and to accelerate our. Our knowledge of the world we live in. So let's talk a little bit about these 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 particular scientists. And I'll, however, whatever you you choose to. It seems like Bob Payne is sort of the is sort of the Rosetta Stone, if you will, of the scientists who who followed them. But you want to talk about Bob and and or wh- whoever else you want to bring up in our conversation.
1: Yeah, I, I think. I mean, I think it was very important for us in making the documentary that we. I mean, I, I think my biggest fear is that people have forgotten about nature um, because we live in very urban lives and we get very distanced from uh, the the natural world around us. Um, and. It, you know most of us have had this experience where we go out into nature you know if if you're in Los Angeles you might go out for a a swim or a surf or something like that and you'll know, or you or you go up into Topanga Canyon and and uh into one of the state parks or something, and and you'll you'll remember what it's like to to fall in love with nature. You remember how amazing um, all these species and animals are. Things that we're in touch with as children. So we did focus on the young lives of 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 our characters, or their early lives, um, trying to capture those moments, which for them were seminal moments, which. Uh, pretty much made them forever want to be in nature um, we have for example the film opens with Mary Pay- uh, Mary power who are who is a young girl um, who suffered from myopia and she goes swimming yeah. um, and uh, you know prior to uh Prior to that, she 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 literally can't distinguish leaves on the trees. But when when she puts the the mask, uh, the snorkel and mask on, the refraction of the water suddenly makes her able to see things for the first time. And it becomes a moment where she becomes so in love with the nature that she sees underwater that she becomes an underwater scientist. She just decides that's what she's going to do for the rest of her life, and that's emblematic for 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 most of the the scientists. I think. Um, Uh, We have John Turborg, who, uh, as a young man, had an experience where he saw uh, a very, very endangered bird, uh, the Bachmann's warbler, and um, that bird went extinct. Um, And I think that set him on the course of of trying to seek out places that were endangered and um, where where nature was endangered, and, and trying to see if he could figure out how it worked before it disappeared altogether. There's yeah, others.
0: There, I mean, there's so many. And I, I, I don't know, it would take a while to go through the the rest of the list. Needless to say, mm. they're all explored in the film. All those people are have their own documentary in them, <laughs> in a manner of speaking. Yeah. They really do. Uh, especially uh, the, the fact that they, again, they've inspired so many others to, to move forward with their research. Which again is a it's an, an important part of the film to understand just the impact that they had, but one of the well before we go any further, I want to remind our listeners that we're speaking with Nicholas Brown. He is the director of the new documentary film called The Serengeti Rules. It is, for a lot of reasons, an important film, and I'm, one of the most important parts of the film in my mind, is that for many of us who feel that the that the environment in our the world we live in is hopelessly doomed for uh because of climate change and and industrialization the film offers us a way out and i, I don't know how much you want to talk about mm. that part of the film but i think it's an important part of the film
1: yeah no i think it's actually the reason we made the film uh, the you know much of what scientists have cataloged is the is the downgrading of planet earth and and we can see that in many many uh, ways and shapes and forms, uh, you know, I listed an example earlier where you remove the starfish and the the biodiversity collapses. And um, we see this in environments all over where we have taken out you know wolves and bears and lions. We've taken out sharks. We've taken out sea otters. We've taken out, for various reasons, we've taken out keystone species. Even things like blue crabs or um, you know certain spiders and we've seen then a collapse in the biodiversity and um there was a report recently where the where the UN uh said that uh, a million species up to a million species are set to go extinct uh, what the report doesn't tell you and what the film will tell you is, is how and why, and one of those reasons is this: the, these inter, interactions between species that are very complicated that basically you remove the, the, the keystone. Say, for example, we took wolves back out of Yellowstone. We might also lose beavers, and we might also lose cottonwoods and certain fish and other things, all because of the, the, the loss of one species. But it turns out, and this is the magic of the film, is that this process is reversible if you put the species back in that's missing. Um, this was the case in the Serengeti where they, uh, in that case, the the Keystone was in fact um, the wildebeest. And when the wildebeest was allowed to, to recover um, from the sort of 60s, 50s, and 60s onwards, they bounced back in such numbers that they affected everything else in the ecosystem. And suddenly you had more giraffe and more lions and more, uh, more uh, elephants and more wild dogs. And everything suddenly came back into the picture because of the presence of this one incredibly important animal that, that was driving the nutrient cycle and really uh, controlling the fire cycle, everything. It, it had such an important impact. So what we now know and realize is that when we do things like put wolves back into Yellowstone National Park or or, or help species recover from um, being at uh, historic low numbers, we we do get the biodiversity back and that's the hopeful message is that nature whilst it can be broken it can also be put back together Um, and it's important to know that and document that scientifically because it's uh... you know we can make a lot of mistakes if we don't know what we're doing there's lots of examples where we've introduced species such as weasels and stoats to new zealand and they've only just made the situation far far worse when they weren't meant to be there in the first place. But when we understand how ecology works and we understand which species we can put back and and, and, and we know the effects of that, we can have remarkable recoveries. And we can recover, you know, even our own health um, can be, uh, there's, there's examples where humans thrive much better when there's a lot of biodiversity in the ecosystem.
0: I, I think that is so important what you said because f- for myself I'll just speak uh, as sort of from my point of view it is easy to get to down about where we are in terms of the environment and be sort of fatalistic about what's going to happen and why and you know but the fact is nature wants to heal itself nature is predisposed to, for a restorative uh, um, methodologies so a restorative Uh, techniques it wants to go back to where it's the healthiest and uh, that's what these scientists have shown us the way in way forward we can in fact begin to repair the planet uh, from the damage that we've done to it and i and that's the thing that makes this documentary (laughs) even more enjoyable to watch is that in fact there's a way out
1: Yeah, and I think, um, uh, you know, the message is, I think, particularly hopeful for younger generations who, um, you know, uh, my favorite Q&As are always with children between, let's say, 11 and 15 or or maybe 20, uh, because it's their generation that really, to whom it matters. You know, we've we've recently lost... you know, a species of rhino that they'll never see, um, that I had the opportunity to see when I was younger. And th- that, um, that's tragic. Uh, but before we get to that point of extinction, we can, you know, there are things we can do to recover nature. I think it will be their project, and it will be their, uh, you know, that that's why I say it's, it is hopeful, and I think particularly um, young people find it, you uh, hopefully a reason to get involved in ecology, or if not ecology, then at least conservation.
0: Well, thank you so much for the film. Again, the film is called The Serengeti Rules. Uh, We have been talking with the director of the film, that's Nicholas Brown. My congratulations to you on your work here and your other work, uh, which you can find out about at Passion Pictures. Uh, dot com I believe. is that is that Do I have that correct? Pa- yeah. Passion, yeah. Pa- passionpictures.com to find out more about your work. Uh, and it by the way, if people who care about these things, which some do and some don't, it's 100% on Rotten Tomatoes in terms of the critical acclaim the film has received. So uh, my congratulations to you on many levels here, Nicholas Brown, for your work uh, with Serengeti Rules. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Mike. Thanks very much.